Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. We think today's episode is really fascinating and important. A few weeks ago, we released a conversation with Terrell Gibbons about the life of Eugene England. England's work on atonement theology had felt like it necessitated another conversation, but it was too big to fit into the first one. So today, we brought Terrell back to talk not just about England's views, but about atonement generally. The conversation starts with the interesting premise that our faith doesn't actually have an official theology of atonement. What is clear doctrinally is that Christ brought about something of universal importance. As the Book of Mormon says, we talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, and we prophesy of Christ. We accept Christ as both Savior and Healer, but that doesn't mean that we've achieved a consensus understanding of how Christ's atonement actually accomplished those goals of saving and healing. So in this conversation with Terrell, we discuss various atonement theories, what some of the greatest Christian and Latter-day Saint thinkers have posited over the years about how the atonement works, why it's necessary, and how it can apply in real life. It seems to us that there was something to value in all of these explorations, and it was fascinating to see how those views have evolved over time. And as it always does, conversation with Terrell brought us back to what's really important, how Christ's atonement can bring less retribution and more healing to society, and how we can participate in that work. Terrell reminds us that atonement is about reintegration into loving relationship, not just vertically with God, but horizontally with those around us. As always, a huge thanks to Terrell for coming on. As you know, he's the best, and we're so excited for you to hear this episode. And with that, we'll jump right in. Well, welcome, Terrell. It's it's good to be with you again. This seems familiar. Yes, we've done this before. Um, It's always a delight to have you here. Um, In our last conversation, we spoke about Eugene England and and your... uh, your biography that you wrote about him stretching the heavens uh there it seemed like there was a whole other conversation that needed to come out of that conversation and this is the, and this is it this is it, <laughs> this is it. Okay. um i want to start by quoting you in that book um it's a section on when eugene has begun writing more in public life and you say that bruce r mcconkey's rebuke of england's talk on the progressive nature of god would be the most widely publicized of his doc- doctrinal conflicts with the brethren. His theory of atonement, however, was the theological work that most persistently damaged his standing with the leadership. So I want to ask, why do you think why do you think that was? Despite the fact that maybe it wasn't um, the broadest reaching uh, of his of his writings, that it had severe implications for him. And more generally, what is what is at stake? Do you believe when it comes to our understanding of atonement? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> we we frequently cite a passage from Joseph Smith that the atonement is the foundation of our faith and everything else is an appendage of it. Joseph Smith never actually said that. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at the original, what he said was, right, we, we affirm the, the birth and death and resurrection of Christ. Everything else is an appendage. Joseph never talked about the atonement. I don't think he ever used the word. Uh, except, is that right? Uh, it appears in section 19, maybe somewhere else, but but not that I can... Find yes, that misquote I've heard literally dozens of times. Yeah, so that's just kind of a well, it's an interpretive recasting of that sentence, which is saying something very, very different. Um, the atonement certainly is foundational to the Christian faith, uh, and yet 
it, it seems as um, a kind of uh, student of Latter-day Saint history that it's the most untheologized mm-hmm. of our teachings and doctrines. We don't have an official, quote, theology of atonement. Uh, there have been various competing theologies of atonement in the Christian past. Uh, I think we continually downplay the extent to which we are shaped by our culture uh, and that we receive revelation through the lens of our personal experience, consciousness, and and culture. And I think that's true of atonement theology. I think that if Jesus Christ were to be crucified in the year 2023, that all the atonement theology that would develop would refer to God as the CEO and talk about <laughs> angel investors and about <laughs> leveraged buyouts. Angel and, investors. And, uh, and, you know, I say that and, you know, it elicits a, a few chuckles, but I, I'm actually serious about that, right? Um, atonement theology was non-existent in the early Christian church. It first mm-hmm. appears, you know, third, fourth centuries. And it, 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 it drinks at the fountain of the contemporary cultural paradigms, which were largely feudal. And so we get all this feudalistic language about sovereigns and monarchs and satisfaction and, and, and justice. And so we go through various phases but by the time Joseph Smith is on the scene, the dominant model, which is close to universal in the Protestant world of his upbringing, is penal substitution. And so this is a model that does not go back to uh, early Christianity. Uh, it is a model that is largely developed by John Calvin and Martin Luther. It is extremely legalistic. And it emphasizes the kind of calculus of sin and suffering. And they have to be, uh, you know, we have to have a kind of zero-sum game that we're mm-hmm. playing the whole time. <clears throat> and so we hear a lot of that language uh, everywhere in the 19th century. And some of that seeps into the church. And uh, there was one prominent voice in the medieval church, Abelard. Uh, most people have heard of him, the famous Heloise and Abelard love affair. But he he was watching the development of an atonement theology that was based on what we call satisfaction theory. And he just found it repugnant. He said, what kind of a God has to have his honor validated? Uh, what kind of God is so insecure that he needs to be affirmed in his sovereignty? What kind of a God would demand the suffering of innocence? And so he counters with uh, his own views. He doesn't elaborate these fully. So one can't actually say that he articulates a theology of atonement, but the seeds are all there in his response to what's happening. And he writes about this in his commentary on the book of Romans. And what he says, I think, is one of the most beautiful things that's ever been said about uh, Christ's life and death. He says, we belong to whomever we love. And we would only belong to Satan if we love him. But if we love God, then we are his. And uh, so he thinks that Christ's love is the lens through which we should see his, his life and death and suffering. And I think it's incredibly significant that President Nelson said something very similar to this. And, and when I quote him in this regard, there's generally shock and awe. Um, <laughs> and so I have to cite the source. And it does come from a general conference talk that he gave in April of 2017. And he said, there is no amorphous entity called the atonement 
upon which we may call for succor, healing, forgiveness, or power. That's an incredible statement. Yeah. Um, and then he goes on to say, you know, Jesus Christ is is the source of what we call the atonement. And what what matters here and what should be central in our thinking is the selfless love of innocence suffering in the way that he permitted himself to be tormented and killed. So something happened in Gethsemane, and we call that the atonement. But I think there are lots of ways in which we, we need to reassess, rethink, and be open to further understanding of this. I actually didn't understand that there wasn't really a theology of atonement in the beginning. So, yeah. so, so is that just our humanity that like we need to be able to explain it? And so we're, we're always like grasping to make it make sense. They're going to think that, that I set you up to ask that question because <laughs> that's, that's just the question I wanted to address. Why was there no atonement theology in the early church? Uh, don't know. Here's my opinion. You're talking about the early Christian church. Sorry. Like yeah, Jesus yeah, early Christian church. is resurrected and what? Right, yeah. right. Okay. And so everybody's preaching the resurrection, but they're also preaching the incarnation. And so you have some of the early church authorities like Athanasius and others who write uh, discourses with the name of on the incarnation. So they ask the question, why? Why was Christ born into the world? And they don't emphasize the atonement or the crucifixion. What they say is, Man went astray in the garden, and, and it's not original sin until we get to the 5th century, right? Until that time, it's, you know, Irenaeus and Origen and others are saying, nah, he was, they were children, and they made some mistakes, and that's okay, that's part of the plan. But what happens, once they make these mistakes and become subject to mortality, our reason is compromised. Everybody is emphasizing this. It's the faculty of reason that is compromised, and what we needed was a new model of how to live a godly life. And so Christ is incarnate to serve as this model and example. So it's really beautiful. The emphasis, I mean, yes, there's also crucifixion and resurrection, but the emphasis is on the incarnation. Now, I think what's happening in the New Testament to a large extent is that Jesus is launching a systematic attack on everything we think we know about justice and equity, and fairness, and retribution. Just consider parable after parable after parable <clears throat> that dismantles our expectations, right? doesn't matter if you come at 9 o'clock in the morning or mm -hmm. 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to get paid this. What? That's not fair. Yeah. doesn't matter if you went out and you know, sold, gave away all your sustenance and whooped it up, or if you stayed <laughs> and were faithful, right? I'm going to embrace you both in my loving arms. God makes the sunshine on the wicked, as well as the, and, and I mean, you know, his audience, this is why over and over again in the language of the evangelists, we say the people were amazed, the people were thunderstruck, the people were confused, because he's deconstructing mm -hmm. these paradigms that are just universal and historically ancient, <clears throat> especially regarding justice. And most of our understandings of justice are rooted in the what's called the lex talionis. It's a Roman... Uh, expression, Latin expression for something that goes all the way back to the code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? That there has to be this zero sum that is achieved. <clears throat> and Jesus seems to be just throwing that to the winds and saying, I'm not about retribution. Uh, the woman caught in adultery, right? He doesn't say, okay, here's the penalty that you've got to pay. 
go thy way and sin no more. Where's where's the justice in the contemporary understanding of that word? So the way the early church writers understood what had happened was that Christ's love overflows all wickedness and all offense. And that's his response to the evil and his own tormentors. It's just love overwhelms all of this. And that's that's what is said about the life and death of Christ. Yeah. And then I think what happens, and this is a point made by Nicholas Walterstorff, who is a uh, philosopher of religion uh, at Yale, is that we have, and I think part of it is cultural indoctrination, and part of it is probably genetic, <laughs> but we want to see retribution. Just think of your typical experience of watching a movie, right? The bad guys... Even if it's a terrible movie, you're not going to turn it off until you see the bad guys get their comeuppance. <laughs> right. And that is revelatory of how deeply rooted our, our hunger and thirst for, for vengeance is. So let me, let me explain what I think is one more manifestation of this tension between the new way Christ is trying to teach us and our entrenchment in old paradigms. Um, we... There's a theology, it's called the theology of kenosis, which is that God divests himself of his power, majesty, and glory and assumes this humble status of an infant. Well, is that a departure from his real nature or is that the fullness of his real nature? Now, right, Christian theology hinges on how you answer that question uh, because the Apostle John seemed to think that it was the latter. No, this is the full revelation of God. We never knew God until we saw him washing the feet of the disciples. That's God the God of infinite love, um, not the God of infinite sovereignty and power and dominion. Yeah. But what would seem, so So think about the second coming, right? How do we anticipate the second coming? Um, well, <clears throat> what, what develops in Christian history is this notion that, okay, Jesus might have forgiven everybody on Calvary, but boy, <laughs> wait till he comes back. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And just think about how perverse this is to say he was just pretending that wasn't real forgiveness, that wasn't real tenderness and grace, because it's all going to come back in vengeance yeah. when he returns. And so what, what we're doing is just kind of deferring this principle of retribution that Christ was repudiating. And so I think what happens by the fourth century is you got too many thinkers in the Christian scene who are just saying, nah, there's got it. Nah, there's got to be some explanation of a penalty that was that was paid, that was imposed and suffered. And so we get the first kind of glimmerings of what will become satisfaction theory uh, and then developing into penal substitution so that somebody had to pay a price. Yeah. Now, go ahead. I think I can anticipate well <laughs> your next question, which is, wait a minute. What about justice and what about yes. all the scriptures say about, yes. about justice in this? Absolutely important question. Well, I, I think one of the purposes of restoration scripture is to help us reframe some mm. of this vocabulary and these concepts. And so let's see, what does Alma teach about justice, right? He, he calls it the law of restoration. And what's the principle? He doesn't use the word retribution. He doesn't use oh, the word payback. What he yeah. says is, Mercy will bring forth mercy. Every person will be recompensed according to his desires. And if the desires of his heart were good, 
then he will be recompensed that which is good. Mm. And so as I read it here, justice is something closer to God will give every person what he or she chooses. What is the actual object towards which they are striving? Because that, for a Latter-day Saint, is what Thor in Heaven was all about, right? Mm -hmm. The validation of human agency, that we are guaranteed that if we, if we choose these things, God will help us to achieve these beautiful, good things. So, all of the scriptures do say that, yes, justice somehow was satisfied. I don't pretend to understand in exactly what manner, according to exactly what principles, that satisfaction of justice took place. But I certainly think that, in part, it may have been the fact that every choice has a consequence. Consequences have to follow the choice, or the choice wasn't valid to begin with. Somehow Christ assumes some of those consequences, but it's not a penalty yeah. that anybody's imposing. There's not this God justice that looms larger than Heavenly Father. I think that he felt through a supreme act of empathy, the consequences yeah. and agency is therefore validated. There's a recognition that these moral laws will have their fulfillment, but uh, it's not about retribution punishment and, and punishment yeah. but but what are you okay what about like sin is woundedness though like who in their in their whole you know in in some state where they can really see reality who would choose anything but god you know aren't we are, aren't our decisions to separate ourselves from god almost always caused by some sort of wound that we that we also expect christ to heal i think this is why repentance is possible because if you could just make a choice and then say, well, I don't really want the consequences of that choice. We'll just let those fall on Jesus. Well, then your choice wasn't validated. Agency didn't really mean anything. And uh, if we think about the doctrine of the unforgivable sin, right? Think about what are the preconditions for what we consider to be an unforgivable sin. The preconditions are that you have an absolutely full knowledge, understanding, insight into the significance of your choice and that and yet you make mm -hmm. it. The reason why that kind of a choice can't be forgivable is because it's not repentable. If you have all the information that is ever going to be available to you, all of the faculties under your full control and dominion, then there's no conceivable basis for ever changing. Yeah. And so God's grace can't reach you because you are not capable of remaking that decision. And in that sense, it's not a, it's not a punishment. Even. It's not a it's punishment. It's truly just a choice. It's just a choice. And, and so because almost every choice we make is to some degree compromised. Okay, now some people mm. get really bent out of shape uh, hearing this because they think, oh, you're denying responsibility. You're not. No, I'm not. I'm saying that, that accountability and responsibility are always proportional to circumstance, right? If you're born with fetal alcohol syndrome, you're not as guilty of becoming an alcoholic as you are if you're raised in a teetotaling family, obviously. So every single situation is individualized according to circumstances and genetics and heredity and environment and upbringing. And, and so there are differing degrees of accountability. To some extent, we're all accountable at some level for our choices. But because our choices are so seldom made with full light and knowledge and a fullness of moral faculty, Christ effectively can say, 
right? That isn't a pure reflection of your will. Mm -hmm. And so why don't you reshape your heart and, and discipline yourself and, and make that decision again? Yeah. And that's metanoel. That's, that's what repentance is. And it's yeah. only possible because our agency is in a process of growth and unfolding. Yeah. So, but why does that scenario require Christ's death? Yeah. And there, as I said, my, I don't know. I don't know. One hypothesis is, uh, was given by B.H. Roberts, mm. a magnificent work of his on the doctrine of deity. I, I think it was the most well thought out, comprehensive attempt to articulate a theology of atonement that we have in our tradition. And B.H. Roberts taught that for the moral order to remain intact, there has to be an assurance that every choice eventuates in its natural consequence. So it's not a proactive punishment being exactly you know, being being given. It's a it's a natural consequence. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah, and so Christ assumes those consequences. So it's a kind of consequential substitution would be the oh. ugly term okay. for it. But it's not penal substitution. Yeah, you're not being it's punished. Softer. And okay. and and here again, you know, one of my metrics is always, you know, President um, or Elder Holland once quoted. Um, William Ellery Channing, who said one of the two most important foundational principles of Christianity is the literal paternal relationship of mm -hmm. God to us. Well, then it seems to me that we ought to be able to use that as a metric. Okay, is this a fatherly kind of disposition or action? So think of yourself as parents. Do you ever punish your children? Well, depends what we mean by punish, but is your, is, do you ever... Right? Is it ever retributive? Is it no? Just because satisfaction has to be made, or does it always have an educative purpose? Is it always for, right to to teach them the importance of of law, or or to help them discipline their young natures, or to help them to learn the consequences of the bitter as opposed to the sweet? It always has a, a formative or educative function. And early church fathers were unanimous and almost unanimous in believing that. Any punishment that we experience, what feels to us like punishment, has to have an educative formative function. It would never be retributive. What kind of a father would that be? Yeah. I want to um, I want to finish filling out sort of the theological landscape of possibilities for atonement. So we, we've talked a little bit about, and there's so much here that I want to dive into, but I think this will help us just get vocabulary for the rest of the conversation. So we've talked a little bit about penal substitution would you and is that the same as satisfaction theory or is not, there's not, a, a not, nuance? not exactly so the, the earliest theology is ransom theology and that mm -hmm. never is developed as a theologist there's just kind of a metaphor that is used and it's really kind of ridiculous right it's <clears throat> it's the belief that adam sinned so suddenly we all are in captivity to satan so jesus offers himself in exchange as a ransom and satan says okay and then Jesus shows up and guess what? I'm perfect. You can't contain me. Oh, I was fooled. Yeah. <laughs> and so Gregory and, and, and uh, Augustine and others compare that to God baiting the hook yes. with Jesus and then, and then pulling it. Okay, so that, that doesn't And this is the so line, the witch, is, and the wardrobe. <clears throat> yeah, right? this would be the white witch. All traitors yeah, belong to me. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Okay. You have to pay off the white witch. Yeah. 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 God so, owes Satan. <clears throat> excuse me. Yes. In that scenario. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so that's ransom theory. And it doesn't really take deep root with a lot of theologians, but but 
we get further on in the Middle Ages and we get satisfaction three. And that, as I said, is a kind of feudalistic analogy, whereas God is the Lord. And uh, if you violate the laws of your liege Lord, you've offended his majesty and questioned his sovereignty. And so you have to make some kind of satisfaction so that his position is validated. So it's kind of and an he doesn't remain dishonored by he doesn't remain what dishonored you, what precisely precisely so so that's why you know the expression you have to make satisfaction mm-hmm. for the offense and so Jesus says well I'm worth more than all of these guys put together here have me and so that that that, is, that gets satisfaction uh, but again that that kind of puts Jesus and God on the opposite side of things right yes. one is demanding and one is satisfying so that's problematic and also fragile it makes God seem like a like the way we talk about Greek gods like very yeah. fragile ego and <clears throat> I, I yeah. think we just sometimes have to call it what it is right this is a narcissistic uh right yeah. paranoid God who who's who's always jealous of his own sovereignty and agency and yeah. we get that a lot in theological history. Yeah, but to be fair to the Latter-day Saint tradition, it seems like most of most of us have never really bought into either of those, right? Either ransom or, or satisfaction. Right, right. The, the outgrowth of satisfaction, penal substitution, yep. it sounds like that's become more sort of a mainstream theology within the Latter-day Saint tradition. It has. Tradition. It's, it's certainly the most common Protestant theology, and it's probably the one that most Latter-day Saints just implicitly mm-hmm. have kind of accepted. Um, so let me just give a, a kind of preface here by saying, you know, as I, Fiona and I began our work uh, focusing in particular on the concept sozo, right, mm-hmm. which can be variously translated heal or save or rescue. And is variously translated <clears throat> in those different ways. And is, yeah, and with great inconsistency in mm-hmm. the King James Version. And so I put the question to uh, a friend of mine who's a theologian, <clears throat> and he said, well, my Greek isn't really good enough to answer this question. Let me ask and, uh, and so he mentioned a, a preeminent British theologian who mm. recently retired. He sent her this query, and she wrote back this lovely reply that she told him he, he could pass on to me, in which she said, yes, I, I, I think Professor Givens is correct, insofar as at some point in Christian history, we got derailed when we substituted legalistic paradigms for medicinal paradigms. And one can go through, and I think one can track both in the history of translation and in the history of theological discourse itself, this shift as it takes place. Uh, the, the, the concept of healing was, was just omnipresent in the early church. In fact, the sacrament, right, the Eucharist was called, right, the bread of immortality and healing. And so the resurrection was thought to begin that moment when you imbibe this and you began to be healed by Christ, the, the great healer. And, uh, and so what happens with Calvin is any compromise between thinking of Christ's role as a healer or as a rescuer from uh, the clutches of, of hell is definitively resolved in favor of the latter. And so what happens is God becomes the judge. The judgment is the courtroom. And Christ is trying to defend us against the imposition of a penalty and the judge says, well, the penalty has to be paid. And uh, if the, the human isn't going to pay it, then Jesus, you have to pay it on their behalf. Yeah. And so Jesus says, okay, punish me instead. And so, you know, there is a lot of language in Scripture that does kind of invite that kind of a reading. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in no position to say that that's utterly false. But I am saying that it is 
uh, a pretty much an invention or at least a development of the 16th century. Yeah. And it's not there in the earliest Christian accounts. And it certainly seems to me inconsistent with the nature of God. Yeah. I, don't, I can't imagine you spend too much time on social media, Terrell. Uh, Do you know what a meme social is? Social what? <laughs> okay. Can I just show you this? It's, it's actually quite small. But there is a, there is a meme that I have, I have seen online which has an illustration of Jesus <laughs> knocking at the door. The, this is, I think this is actually a Latter-day Saint painting. I think, um, well, it's one we have in our church buildings. I don't know. Yes. Okay. And the, the meme says, knock, knock. And it's Jesus. You know, who's there? It's Jesus. Let me in. Why? I have to save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. It's a little, I think it's pretty unfair. It's so it's in terms of Latter-day Saint theology. I think it is what you just described sort of in terms of Calvinist theology, but we Latter-day Saints seem to have taken a little bit of the edge off in the sense that we're not saying that God is either is punishing us or wants to punish us, but that God is subject to the demands of justice and therefore must punish us despite his great love for us. Would you agree? I would agree with that. And and as I, this takes us back a little bit to what I said earlier is that I, I I can agree that justice plays a role, but uh, you probably understand justice in a different way than I do. Mm. Yeah, and so that that seems to me the question. So you know, another another question that I think we need to be asking is: Okay, um, <clears throat> why did we need a restoration if we were getting all the important stuff right? Yeah, and I think that's a fair question. Yeah. And implicit in the idea of restoration is something really important was was missing or had changed. And uh, I think one route to an answer is to say, well, what did Joseph learn in the first vision? And, uh, well, his experience, the first vision, he summarized right in his first account by saying that the feeling of love was overwhelming. And I had entered into the sacred grove afraid, right? I was afraid, but I ventured, I risked, and suddenly I have just this overwhelming love. And, you know, we celebrate the fact that we believe in a God of body parts and passions. But can we just think this through theologically? What we're saying is we know Jesus had passion. Jesus suffered. Jesus wept. He died. We're talking about here is God the Father. Does God the Father suffer, right? And one of the cornerstones of Western theology is, no, God is impassable. We as Latter-day Saints say, no, he is passable. If he were impassable, it would be easier to take this meme seriously, right? Mm-hmm. God the Father is beyond suffering with us, but Jesus isn't. So we've got these two oppositional positions. But we can't hold that position if we're Latter-day Saints. We believe that God the Father, as we read in the book of Moses, is fully vulnerable to our pain, to suffering with us. So it seems to be impossible to construct a kind of doctrine of atonement mm-hmm. in which God is insistent on penalty and Jesus is protecting us from the Father. Yeah. So what does that leave us though? Because it feels like then we're kind of back, we just like <clears throat> keep circling back to this this problem, which is that either God is subjecting God's self to laws that are bigger than God. And so like, is there something bigger than God? Or like, it, like how do you make sense of the fact that it all happened the way it did. And then we keep saying that was the only way. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know. I think, I, again, I'm going to go to section 88 uh, for the closest thing that I think we get to an answer in, in modern revelation to what 
laws, if any, are operative in terms of judgment and salvation. And when we get to verse 34, section 88, we get to what I think is a pretty phenomenal proposition, which is everybody will get that which they are willing to receive. Yeah. And, and if you don't get everything, it's because you weren't willing to receive. Well, I mean, do we really, if we really believe that, then, then again, what we're saying is what we're calling justice, God is here calling a kind of grace whereby mm -hmm. he just makes available to us anything that we will to receive. Yeah. That's what he has to honor. And yeah. that's, that's the principle. So are you articulating another theory of atonement that has a name of some sort? <laughs> so we've got, we, we covered, you know, penal substitution and then there's yeah, maybe Latter-day yeah, Saint penal yeah. substitution, which is a little bit different. Well, well, I certainly think that Abelard was onto something. With uh, moral influence. With moral influence. And uh, right. He says it's the spectacle of this perfect love and innocence offering itself for us that kindles a flame in our hearts and transforms us. I think this language is echoed in the Book of Mormon and it's echoed in John's writings, where in both cases we're told that Christ says, I will be lifted up that I may draw all men unto me. Okay, so the, this is a clear, explicit scriptural indication that there is some kind of affective mm -hmm. consequence to the atonement. <clears throat> it's not just about some metaphysical cosmological principle. It's about how it actually impacts the individual and turns our hearts toward him. So I think that has to be the affective dimension of atonement. That in and of itself doesn't seem to me to answer all of the needs of an atonement theology, which is it has to be universal, it has to be inescapably necessary, and mm. yes. et cetera, et cetera. And this is where I just, I come up short, I don't know. I can't, yeah. you know, James Talmadge, he, he, he couldn't proffer a, an explanation yeah. either. I think, you know, as I said, the closest explanation that i have found compelling is bh roberts consequential substitution yeah. that christ is assuming the burden of consequences in some way through an act of infinite empathy uh so that he also can be one that we confide in and trust knowing yeah, yeah. He has, do you think do you, sorry do, do you think that possibly it's actually more beneficial to just not have it so cut and dry and like really clear like, is it bet because because it, I can see how working through this really does sort of reveal what you really believe about God. Like this penal substitution doesn't feel like it quite fits. Moral influence doesn't feel like it quite fits. And like the reasons that doesn't the reasons it doesn't feel like it fits probably reveals a lot about your own relationship with God. And like, it, do you think that maybe that uncertainty, like the fogginess that maybe that's I'm really that's glad helpful. for that question. Um, so let me say a couple of things about that. <clears throat> one is, you know, President Uchtdorf said on one occasion that there has to be a connection between what we believe and how we act, right? Mm -hmm. Theology does matter because it, it shapes how we view God and how accessible we find him and how approachable we find him. So I think, I think these beliefs are important. I don't think that we have to know in our minds exactly what the principles that were being worked out in the atonement are. And I think, I, I think this is part of what President Nelson was saying when he mm -hmm. said, look, let's just stop assuming there's this, right, this magical thing called the atonement. And can we just recenter on, on Christ and love? Now, so another way of, of answering your question, I think, uh, comes to mind when I think of a conversation I had just a little over a week ago with uh, a prominent friend of the church. Uh, an Anglican, and I asked him, what, 
was it that first drew you theologically to the Latter-day Saint tradition? I know it was friendships and other things you had connections to, but why do you find it theologically appealing? And he said, without a pause, he said, oh, it's the Cappadocian Fathers. It was hearing them echoed by Joseph Smith. Now, that's not a, a everyday household term, <laughs> but what he was- Well, I, I know what it means, but for, for everybody else. <laughs> so he was referring to three of the great fathers of the fourth century, Gregory of, uh, well, Basil of uh, Caesarea, his younger brother, Gregory, and their friend, Gregory Nazianzus. So we have Gregory of Nisa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and, and Basil. And so I asked him, I said, I take it what you mean is that these three Cappadocian fathers in the fourth century were all great propounders of what's called the theology of ascent. And I'm guessing you heard that echoed in Joseph Smith. And he said, yes, that's exactly right. Okay, so these three fathers were in love with God. And they believed, following Origen, their predecessor, that we are embarked on a journey of ascent toward becoming one with God. And this is not a gift that he bestows upon us. It's an invitation he extends to us. And the more we contemplate on the beauty of God, and on his love, the more we're just, we're drawn upwards. It's like, it's like we're just filled with eternal helium. And we just, <laughs> we just rise, this beautiful theology of ascent. Um, that all is going to disappear pretty much in, in Christianity, or at least it gets overwhelmed by a notion that, no, we're not reaching upward, God is reaching downward. Mm. And he just elects some or impose, you know, gives grace to some, but it's not, it's not through what we're doing. But there's something particularly beautiful about this, this Cappadocian notion that, no, love is the motivator, and love elevates us and transforms us. And I think that's how the atonement should work. I think the more that we contemplate the reality, we read section 19, we read about the actual suffering and trauma and just the, just the uh, irrationality of it all. Mm. How could any man love the human race that much. And that should engender in us a kind of love for God that is not abstract, it's not theological, it's not theoretical, but it kindles something in us. Yeah. Could we could we talk about DNC nineteen since since you just brought it up? Um, because it, because to me this is one of the most problematic <laughs> yeah. uh, sections in terms of uh, if, we, if one wants to, as a Latter-day Saint, let go of penal substitution, DNC 19 is like standing right in the way, in, yeah, at yeah. least the way I see it. Yeah. Um, Therefore, I command you to repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger, and your sufferings be sore, how sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, ye, how hard to bear you know not. But I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent, you know, and so, so on and so forth. And to me, it's like you've got to do some real... I don't want to say mental gymnastics, but some smithing of this, of these verses in order to get around penal substitution. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Well, I think that as is almost always the case with scripture, the precondition for even beginning a conversation about it is to read the whole section. Mm. <laughs> and how, how, it's how is, much more fun to cherry pick. How is that, yeah. <laughs> but how is that prefaced? It's prefaced with this remarkable admission 
on the part of God. Um, again, it is written, eternal damnation. Wherefore, it is more express than other scriptures that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, I will explain unto you this mystery. Mm. For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great it is. For behold, I am endless. And punishment, which is given from my hand, is endless. Wherefore, endless is my name. So it's that phrase in particular that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men. He has just told us mm. the images, the language, the expressions I use are whatever is necessary to get your attention yeah. mm. and to effect a change in your hearts. We, we, <laughs> right? We are, uh, you know, look, I'm not a Calvinist, but, you know, we're hard-hearted, right? Brass-necked. <laughs> Uh, sons of a gun sons of a gun <laughs> and uh, you know God is trying to shape us into yeah. a celestial people and so he's he, he's just confessed there don't take these things literally these images aren't always ridical but and so you know in the same the same set of words where he's saying yeah I'll smite you with my wrath then he also says a few minutes later um, learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit and you shall have peace in me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Parents lose their temper sometimes at their kids, mm -hmm. but it's to get their attention. Yeah. Uh, and it's a show of love. So that's how I yeah. make sense of that. It also just feels really revolutionary to reread all of these scriptures with this new understanding of justice. I think that's the piece that has been missing for me. And it sounds like what you were articulating is very similar to what Adam Miller talks about in Original Grace, that where we maybe a traditional understanding of justice is that we draw this straight. He says we draw a straight line from from sin to judgment to punishment and suffering or something like that's the line, like punishment and then suffering. And and I like the idea that we can reframe that entire that entire concept to mean that we're answering with what's needed. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Adam and I are in many cases saying very similar things. We sometimes get there by different routes. But it's it's certainly the case that I don't think this is an invention, uh, a willful invention of either one of us. I, I think that, at least in my case, I think it's deeply rooted in the Book of Mormon's description of justice as the law of restoration. It's in that same section, 42, where Alma says, wherefore ye are your own judges. Hmm. Now, wait a minute. Wait, are we judging ourselves or is God judging? Right. And I, I think what he's saying is ultimately, right, God's judgment is just the mirror hmm. yeah. in which you come to terms with yourself so that you can continue this process of change. It seems like those two terms, yeah. restoration and retribution, are sort of like the terms on which this all hinges a little bit. I, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, so. And the difference between them, right? I, I know Adam mm -hmm. has said um, a traditional understanding of justice means returning good for good and evil for evil. He likes to see it as good for good and good for evil. Not in the sense that you're rewarded for doing evil, but that justice always asks what is needed, yeah. you know, in order to help this, help this person yeah. or heal this situation. Um, sorry. No, yeah, I agree. Like, and that makes so much sense to me that evil for evil, like begets more evil, right? Like people don't just stand up and become good people because they were, because they received yes. justice would be self-defeating yeah. if, if it returned evil for evil. Yeah. yeah, maybe that maybe that's the thing that feels the most problematic about a god who <clears throat> whose entire plan is to is to punish someone or something. The only person I know who addressed that uh, 
clearly, openly, and convincingly was Nietzsche in his gene really? genealogy of morals, what, right? which is a devastating critique of Christianity. Uh, ultimately, he thinks it serves a useful purpose. But <laughs> his critique is rooted in part in the notion of retribution. And he says, look, this is clearly based on an economic model that if you, if you owe me $5, I have to pay you $5, then it comes out to zero. He said, okay, so if you have... If you've kidnapped my daughter, okay, that's five gigajoules of pain. How do I make that zero out? And he said, obviously, I have to produce five gigajoules of pleasure. So how do I do that? Oh, I make you suffer. And he said, so clearly Christian atonement theology is predicated on schadenfreude. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, that God, and, and then to make it worse, he quotes Aquinas, who actually says, this is, this is kind of unbelievable, Aquinas actually says, the pleasure and joys of the blessed in heaven will consist in part on their ability to see and behold the sufferings of the damned in hell. Now, we just see that, okay, well, that's just blatant perversity. But that's at the root of any theology mm -hmm. of atonement, which is based on retributive justice. How else can they balance out? As you said, otherwise, you're doubling the bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could we spend, oh, sorry. Okay. I was going to ask if we could spend a little bit of, uh, more time on moral influence. I, so this, and this gets back to sort of the beginning. Eugene England, it sounded like, based on some of his writings, was in line with Abelard. And <clears throat> it, it seemed like what he was, what he was saying, um, was that a lot of the problem with sin is that our human sense of justice doesn't allow us in many cases to forgive ourselves. And we're overwhelmed by, by shame and grief. And yet, this shock of eternal love that we experience when we encounter Christ suffering and dying on our behalf is enough to pull us out yeah. of that um, of that shame. The problem that you bring up in the book is that uh, that that makes atonement useful but not necessary. That's right. A lot of people. We have a lot of Mother Teresas and Gandhis who lived holy lives but right. never felt the shock of the love manifest in the crucifixion. Right. And so I think that was uh, the problem the brethren had, although they never said. Now, he sent a copy of, of this thesis, a copy of his essay on the, that they all might not suffer. He sent a copy to Elder Packer and he sent a copy to Elder Maxwell. And both of them let him know they did not approve. Uh, but they didn't tell him not to keep publishing it or talking about it. They just assumed he would infer that. <laughs> Which for, for Gene, though, that's a green light, right? Yes, that was a green yeah. light. So he, he, he published this essay in the 1960s. He was still giving this talk as a, in Firesides in the 1980s. And so eventually he was, he was dismissed from BYU. And as far as I can connect the dots, that was, that was the preeminent reason. Um, yeah, so I don't, as I said, it's, it's interesting to me that neither Elders Packer nor Maxwell pointed to any particular deficiencies. I could, I would just guess that that would have been why they were uneasy with it. Is this is not an adequate, but I certainly think it's a beautiful part of it. So Jean England was very uh, explicit about the influence that Abelard had on his thinking, and he quoted Abelard, said, "I'm I'm just developing it," and then he amplified it a little in 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 that way. Um, but uh, I, I think there's been a great interest in Abelard in recent years. There's been a recognition. I mean, I, I just think there are all of these wonderful, wonderful transformations that are taking place in theology and theological conversation, especially among Catholics and Anglicans. Right now? Right now, at this very moment. Um, 
a little off topic. Can we, we go there? Yeah, please. But so, yeah, so for example, a book I just finished reading yesterday uh, was called The Mystery of Death by Ladislaus Boros, who was a Jesuit, and he died uh, mid-20th century. But he, like many other theologians, are at a point where they're just, as a Catholic, he just can't buy into the Catholic doctrine of no salvation outside the church. And he said, that's that can't be God. And so they are exploring, trying to find alternate ways in which God's love can be more universally accessible. And so he he innovates this wonderfully interesting theology called the theology of the final moment, in which we all, uh, no matter what our backgrounds, upbringings, moment in history, at the moment of death, we suddenly are divested of all of these things that contaminate our will, and we are given this chance to accept God or reject God. Um, the merits of that particular solution don't interest me as much as the impulse behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you got Karl Rahner, who has another Catholic theologian who has developed what he calls the theology of the anonymous Christian, which is that a lot of people are Christians and they just don't know it. And Christ will recognize their faithfulness. And then you have Eastern Orthodox theologians like David Bentley Hart, saying, wait a minute, all the early Christians taught universalism. God's going to find a way to save it, right? And so there's this chorus of voices. And of course, the Latter-day Saints, we can say, yeah, well, we were, we were already there in the <laughs> 1840s. Well, yeah, but, but can't we just celebrate the fact that other people are coming to, to say, yeah, we have to, they're not saying this explicitly, but implicitly they're saying, yeah, we got to come up with a solution at least as good as the Mormons, because <laughs> <laughs> they figured out a way to make salvation universally accessible. And... Um, uh, we also just have have had a huge turn toward the possibility of God, right? You have all kinds of theologians who say, look, we just got to divest this baggage of, of emphasizing the impassibility. And so there are all these wonderful points of convergence on a sensibility that is central, I think, to restoration mm -hmm. thinking. It seems like there are a couple of perspectives, though, and I, I think maybe we've even talked about this with you before, because it seems like it comes up in every context. But there, there's one idea that, you know, you're, you've got to get back to the truth, which was the original thing, yeah. and that development and, and, and reinterpretation, that those are all going to take us away from the original pure truth. Yeah. But I think there's another way you can look at it, which is that we're, it's, it's a continuing restoration, that there's growth and, and that maybe this tumbling forward is also is bringing us to something truer, but that feels a lot messier. Yeah. It's easier to yeah. find the one thing from at the beginning, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm just curious how you look at that. Like, well, do you think this is good to be? Yeah, absolutely. It developing? is. And again, there's, you know, there's a historical component to this, uh, this whole tension in the early church, right? Joseph Smith restored um, the gospel in an age when primitivism was a big thing. There were lots of... That's what you call that? Uh, like yeah, trying to get to the original Yeah, yeah. Thing. Historians oh, of religion oh, cool. call it primitivism. And there okay. were a lot of primitivists, a lot of other sects, denominations that sprang up rooted in the same feeling that, no, we got to get back. We got to get back. Um, the disciples of Christ, right? They were, right? Um, if it's not in the Bible, we're throwing it out. So it was all about stripping back and getting back to primitive Christianity. So we emphasize that in an article of faith. We believe the same organization that exists in the primitive church. And I think in the first hundred years of the church's existence, and maybe even more, there was a sense that, yeah, they had it in its fullness and its totality, and then it got corrupted. Look, we've got pretty good documentation for the first few centuries of Christianity. It wasn't there <laughs> in the fullness that we have imagined. Um, they didn't have the complexity of church organization we have. They didn't have a, a, a theology of families forever. They didn't have a lot of things that are part of the restoration. So I think absolutely we have to take more 
uh, literally President Nelson's words that the restoration is a process mm. and, and not a process in the sense of continuing to uncover the past. Mm. Yeah. But a process in terms of, oh, God's going to continue to reveal many great and important things yeah. that add to an understanding that was never here in its fullness. And I think that makes things a lot more exciting. Okay. You, you have to talk about the, your, in your Wayfair essay this last time, you talk about what fullness, how fullness was defined in Joseph Smith's time. And I had never heard that before, that it's not fullness as in complete. It's a, what was it? A state of, a state of abounding. State that was the abounding. definition. Yeah. I've never yeah, heard that before. And that makes everything feel like, okay, like that every, yeah, it's so, yeah. that's so congruent with, with what we believe about a continuing restoration, um, restoration that it could have, it could be full in the sense that it's, it is moving forward. Yep. And it's yep. seeking for truth. Yeah. So I think, you know, we need to be caught up short every now and then because in our exuberance and enthusiasm about the restoration and fullness and wholeness and, right, we tend to think, yeah, we got it all. And so we have this language of satiety, right, mm -hmm. of of completeness. And uh, yeah, so I was really happy to find it. You, you can do this so often, right? Take a critical term in the Bible. Look, see what would it mean in 1828, Webster's Dictionary? What's the etymology of the term? <laughs> Did you just give us the key to being Terrell Giddens? And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's all it is. That's, that's all it is. one of those dictionaries. <laughs> um, no, one theologian says that the task of theology is no more and no less than simply uh, examining the distance that separates a word's original meaning mm. and what it means in the church today. <laughs> that's, that's and that's a, well, you did write an entire book on this, I guess. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so bring us up to then, like, why does it matter? I like, it's all, it's all interesting. And, and it's, I, it does feel like it matters to recognize when something feels kind of problematic when it, when you notice that it pings, because something yeah. just feels a little bit off. Yeah. But how, how does atonement theology actually affect our daily Christian walk? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, in, in my stake, without identifying it, I'll, I'll tell you that three leaders of the stake said that that we were having an early missionary return rate of 30%. And that one of the most common factors in that was scrupulosity. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 I would be far from the first to draw a direct connection between scrupulosity and a kind of Calvinistic conception of God as somebody who's judging us at every moment waiting to condemn. And so I think there are very real, tangible ways in which our conception of God matters. And if our conception of atonement theology is is rooted in kindred conceptions, then I think that impedes our ability mm -hmm. to be open and receptive to God's love and gentleness and, and tenderness. Um, I also, you know, I, I keep going back, is it Moroni 7, where he bears his testimony and he says, effectively, what he's saying is, look, you don't have to believe anything I said, but believe in Christ. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so that's kind of how I feel about the work of theology. If it doesn't, if the conversation isn't making you more alive to, to God's love and the beauty uh, manifest in the world, then then you're reading the wrong theology. Yeah. Uh, go somewhere else. And a lot of theology doesn't, uh, but some does. Yeah. I, I guess I want to ask in that, and this relates to our um, our discussion about restoration as well, but what is our role as members of the church, lay members of the church, as it pertains to theology, should we be readers of theology or should we just, uh, and not just theology, but even doctrine as expounded by, you know, um, over the pulpit? Um, or are we in some way in your mind, more active participants? Yeah. Um, I think part of the complication is in the, the word theology, which has all kinds of connotations, right? Joseph Smith called the lectures, the lectures on theology, 
They weren't lectures on faith. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah, go back and look at the original. They're the lectures on theology. Oh, wow. And, and he and Brigham Young said it's the most important subject to which you can devote your mm -hmm. life of study. But by the time you get to Wilfred Woodruff, he's saying it's the greatest tomfoolery in all the world. Um, <laughs> and so uh, that latter opinion tends to dominate today. And uh, uh, I, I, there's, there's a wonderful essay that's written by, I think it's Bruce Marshall. It's called The, the Vocation of the Theologian. And he's a Catholic. And I, I, I have the same position about theology that he does. He said theology should serve the church because only the church has the authority to speak authoritatively and to pronounce doctrine. The task of the theologian is to expand upon, elucidate, contextualize, right, um, track the history of, do all of those other things, but never making a claim to an authoritative voice. Yeah. And so if we think about theology that way as just reflection on mm -hmm. God and and what doctrines have been pronounced upon God, then it seems to me that the scriptures are pretty plain that we should all be engaged in doing that, right? Seek ye out of the best book, words of wisdom and seek wisdom by study and also by faith. And so I think all of those are injunctions to be more reflective. And and clearly, um, the School of the Prophets was predicated on the idea that that everything is interrelated and that the more we know about human psychology and modes of cognition and the human past, and the more we can see and understand God's ways of interacting with us individually and as a society. And so all of those, I think, can be part of what we call in a general way, you know, theology. Mm -hmm. Do you, without, we won't, we don't need to go into specific talks, but it felt to me in this last conference that there were multiple theories of atonement that were sort of that were that were used during the talks. It felt like they, it wasn't one consistent, uniform, yeah, yeah, agreed upon atonement theology. And maybe it's because we just don't talk about it very much, and so maybe it's sort of unconscious. But I'm just curious if you feel like this is a conversation that's still happening, and is it as explosive as it was when Eugene England was writing about yeah, it? Yeah, I felt like I definitely heard penal substitution at conference, but I also heard. I don't know if it would necessarily be consequential substitution, but more of a sort of that theology of atonement as as healing. Yes, yes. Well, I definitely heard that. And, yeah. and one can detect some dissonance there. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the great lessons of Gene's life that he himself called the great lesson of his life that he learned too late mm -hmm. was there's a difference between the brother and the brethren. Mm. Uh, in other words, no one brother has the authority to pronounce church doctrine, but by consensus, whatever they declare is is doctrine and so i think i look for what is the where is there consensus and there is consensus it seems to me in the last 10 years that we need to shift and talk more about healing and less about retribution mm -hmm. uh, i don't think that's really debatable yeah i also want to i i don't want to have an entire atonement conversation and not mention the fall once because it is such an important part of many of these theories of atonement um you know adam and eve fell, they either sort of uh, granted original sin upon us in which we were born sinful, or at least they entered us into a world in which we would sin and therefore uh, need some kind of uh, saving or, or salvation. Um, it's tricky, though, because for many people, the story of Adam and Eve has become a little bit more problematic, I would say, than the story of Jesus. Because, you know, maybe it happened 6,000 years ago in a garden that doesn't appear to match up with our understanding of biological evolution. And so if you, if you lose the story of Adam and Eve uh, in a literal sense, then you also sort of lose a lot of the necessity 
of atonement, um, in according at least according to several of these theories. So, is in your mind is the fall related to the atonement, or is it some, or is it because? And the other part of it is we have restoration 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 scripture, including uh, you know Second Nephi that sort of does explicitly link the two together. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think? Okay, a couple of things. One, um, when Nephi and others talk about the fall and how uh, it is healed or addressed, uh, the emphasis is always on resurrection, right? The atonement brings us back into the presence of God. Uh, and this is this was true of the early church, right? The atonement was much more about resurrection uh, until the fourth century and emphasis shifted. And so I think in that sense, right, um, whether, you know, the extent to which we take the fall, literally, that story, right? I mean, Brigham Young certainly didn't. The, the temple used to begin by telling you, look, this this is right, what you're seeing here is figurative. Uh, so we certainly are not compelled by anything in our doctrine to be literalists and fundamentalists when it comes to that. But clearly there's something that is important and that, that's being told. But uh, I think if nothing else, it's a story of how death enters into the world as a conscious decision. But until Augustine, there's no sense of a, of a shared guilt for what Adam and Eve did. As I mentioned earlier, Irenaeus and Origen both said that, oh, what happened was kind of just, you know, relatively inconsequential. They made some mistakes along the way. No, you know, no big deal. It's part of an educative ascent toward God. And so there is nothing in that original understanding of the fall that would lead to the kind of atonement theologies that we get. But if you're reading the book of Romans like Augustine does, who didn't have great Greek, and so he he articulates, right, a doctrine of universal fall, universal guilt, and universal taint, all based on his reading of Romans. So it's kind of a package deal, right? Everybody is condemned together. Therefore, Jesus can do this one atoning act and everybody is saved together, right? And that's, it's just kind of an oversimplified kind of arithmetic that he's mm -hmm. working with. I, I find that if we go back to the conception of, no, we're all here, it's an educative experience. We're all going to suffer collateral damage along the way. And Christ heals that collateral damage through a love that is that is endless. I think that makes a lot more sense. And it, yeah. it avoids our commitment to all of these weird kind of metaphysics. It, mm. Yeah. And that, and that Augustine point of view does seem simplistic, but do you see relics of that? What does that look like in a in a modern day? Like I think probably people do subscribe to that without even realizing it, maybe, but what what do you think that looks like now? Well, I think I think most Latter-day Saints uh recognize that original sin was Right, uh, one of the primary indicators of, of, of you know what we refer to as an apostasy. So I don't think that they have a problem with that. What I think, where I think the struggle does lie, and I think this is this is also the kind of thing that Adam has has tried to address. Right, is is in thinking that the atonement is this kind of safety net to catch us in case we make a mistake. Mm -hmm. Right, which is that yeah. precondemns us to guilt and shame and hopelessness um, because it it presumes that there's some way to avoid that. And yet, right, in the book of Moses, it's so clear. It, right, we're told, no, we have to taste the bitter. And what is bitter? Bitter has just been defined a moment earlier as sin. So we have to undergo the experience of sin in order to appreciate the goodness of God and the alternative choices we can make. Um, and so the atonement is not a safety net. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not, a, not a backup plan. How do you feel like these different atonement theories, or do you feel like they affect the way we believe we should treat each other? Like, do we are is each theory a different injunction? Is it is it calling us to play a different part in the lives of our 
of our other Christian siblings? Because I can imagine if you believe that Christ came to save you from this, from Satan who's pulling you away or from, or to, to be this, this, um, you know, this middleman to stop God from destroying you. I can, I can see how that would really give you energy around saving everybody else. Like you, to be like Jesus, you would have to tell them, you know, where their sins are and, and yeah, like you yeah, become, yeah. you try to be this savior. And and that feels like a lot different energy than, than healing. So I'm just curious, like, is that one more way that these, these atonement theories are, are going to trickle down into our, our everyday interactions? Yeah, absolutely. So this really introduces a thread that hasn't been a part of this conversation yet. And that is that atonement for, uh, I, I think, in restoration thought and in, in, in our modern understanding of uh restoration doctrine is horizontal as well as vertical, right? It's the reintegration mm. of us into loving relationship. It's all about disaffection and alienation from each other, from our true selves, from from God. And so I do think that one of the most magnificent aspects of Latter-day Saint theology and teaching is the communal nature, communitarian nature of salvation. So if we think of the atonement as the, the process by which God wants to reintegrate the entirety of the human family into loving union, then clearly that makes us realize that, well, if we're, according to the baptismal covenants, co-participants in that process, then instead of being focused on my salvation, we understand, oh, no, no, this is a collective enterprise. And so it, it should make us more other-oriented. Yeah. And, uh, Have, haven't you advocated for a, a different pronunciation of the word? Well, yeah. I mean, originally it was pronounced at one minute. And I love Julian of Norwich's use of the the expression. This would be in the early 14th century. She she just keeps referring to wanting, yeah. wanting mm. the, the work of wanting. Jesus wants to one us to him, uh, to unite, to combine, to bring together. And so I, I do think the problem with atonement is that, as President Nelson said, it's kind of morphed into this abstract and yet reified magical thing. But if, if we were always saying, no, through the at-one-ing of Christ. Also, the other important thing about at-one-ing or reconciliation is what it's called more often in the Book of Mormon. Jacob and others use the word reconciliation for what we would call atonement. And it's, that's just a, a good translation, right, of the concept. Um, but it would, it would emphasize the fact that at-one-ing is a process. And, and I just, I, I don't think we can emphasize enough that when we think of the atonement as this thing that happened, then where is God visible manifest in our life right now? But if we think at oneing as, no, this is this process that Christ initiated. Oh, well, well, how's it, how's it going with me right now? What's my place in that process? Mm -hmm. And um, I just think it makes it more alive and real and vivid mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, relevant to, yeah. to the now, the here and now. Um, and, and incidentally, that, that just raises another theme that I'm reminded of here, and that is that uh, there's a differentiation in Christian thought between what I call the nowness and thenness mm. uh, of, of emphasis. And in the early church, you find, like Ignatius, the first person outside the New Testament, whose writings we have, and he's writing letters on the way to his martyrdom. It's very touching. He knows he's going to Colosseum to be either burned or torn asunder. And he's writing letters to all, all of his friends. He said, please don't impede my execution, right? I'm doing this out of love for, for Jesus. But he refers to the newness of life that we all inhabit, right? Like I said earlier, it's the resurrection has begun. We're, 
we're already there. Once again, you get to the fourth century and all the emphasis shifts to, no, this is a veil of tears. Mm -hmm. Our happiness is on the other side of the veil. Yeah. And um, I just I just think that's something of which we should be conscious and aware that we don't fall into that trap of thinking that somehow we're working for future reward rather than something's happening to me now yeah. at, at the hands of God's love that is transforming my experience of life. Yeah. I, I, I love the the verb to one and the repronunci repronunciation of the word because because of precisely what you said which is when you like when you hear the word atonement it's almost like you've heard it so much that We're mostly what you hear is just all of the cultural everything that's ever that's ever come up when you hear the word at one mint it is much more active you think you think about your relationship to god and more not more importantly perhaps but equally as important you think about your relationship to to other people and so i i guess i really agree with you. I like, I like thinking of it in those terms because it makes it so much more, so much more active and so much more present yeah. in our lives. And it feels really powerful to understand, to just have a little bit of background about each of these atonement theories that we maybe just accept without, just because they're in the air, you know, because then I think it kind of gives you a way to read scripture with, with enough context that you can apply this filter and say like, what, what is my, you know, do I have this legalistic understanding of God? And like, let's filter that out and like, see what's there. If I, if I choose not to read it that way. And that feels like you kind of, whatever you come to, and it probably won't be crystal clear, but it seems like it will always bring you back to some, some overflowing love experience with, with God re receiving from God, but also this injunction to to participate with God in that way, just giving love. And I love that that it it comes back to this image of the cross and this horizontal and vertical relationship with God and our and our siblings. And it feels like it's it feels like it's important to at least get to that understanding of the atonement. Otherwise, I think the part we might choose to play is to be the judge, like be the judge for God. And it makes it makes our 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 role so much more complicated because we have such a limited understanding and everybody's got their own wounds and like we're just kind of in this we get into this rumble of of trying to yeah. decide how to separate ourselves and should we separate ourselves from God? And this just feels so much more simple that like the answer might really just be love and and everything else is God's to do. And maybe that is what the atonement is always has always been meant to to teach us. As we were as you were as you were talking, I was I was getting I was actually getting like floating images of faces <laughs> in my mind of people who in my life who have kind of been bugging me and just I'm kind of a little not in love with them right now. And when we're talking about atonement mm -hmm. in terms of penal substitution, it's all about me, you know, and it's about my own sin and righteousness and repentance and salvation. And when and we when we zoom out and make it and make it this process of wanting, I'm actually seeing these faces and feeling and feeling love toward them and sort of coming up with a different way of of interacting with them. Like it's it's feeling very um, present and participatory for me. Yeah. So thank yeah. you for everything. Yeah, thanks so much, Cheryl. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right, thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Terrell Gibbons. And a big thanks to Terrell for coming on the show. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening. And remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.